All right, this morning we're back in Acts. We're going to start with verse 46, and I'll start us out with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can gather with the flock and open up the Bible and learn. Thank you for what you've done and for the power of the gospel. Give us wisdom and understanding as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now last week, remember the... uh, there was a positive reception in the synagogue to the gospel. And then it said there was uh, almost the whole city that wanted to come out the next week. Remember I showed a slide that had a picture of a possible meeting place where they could have been. It's actually there in Pisidian Antioch. So one of the things we're doing is emphasizing the historicity of the Bible This is not fiction. These are not fables. But this is uh, real sober, clear history that happened in real time and space. There's one thing I found here in my notes from Tannehill, who I've used since the 90s. His material, I thought, was uh, groundbreaking. Although it should have been obvious, I'm not saying he's the first one to thought of this, but Luke Acts is a two-volume work, and that it has narrative unity. But here's what Tannehill said about what we studied last time about the city coming out. And the jealousy, remember that word for jealousy we studied? Okay, here's what Tannehill says. Quote, however, it is significant, says Tannehill, that the Jewish audience is portrayed as interested and responsive until the next Sabbath when nearly the whole city, including the Gentile population, is attracted to Paul's message. The Jews react with jealousy and begin to oppose Paul. Thus, the narrative suggests that the discovery of Gentiles as fellow citizens in Jesus' messianic state is a major stumbling block for the Jews of Antioch, turning them into scoffers who refuse to believe God's work. Now, the reason I quote um, in this context, you can see it's pertinent to the verse we're going to cover. I'm also preaching on Ephesians as it's my time to, to preach. And... Uh, which I'll start again next week in Ephesians. And notice, you know, really, Acts and Ephesians really are important to think about together because one of the key verses in all of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.15, that God is making of both Jews and Gentiles one new man. And what we're going to learn in Acts is that that is not easy. It's going to take a major miracle. Because the incompatibility between Jews and Gentiles was created originally for centuries, yea, even millennia, by God in order to preserve the seed promise. The law that God instituted under Moses 
created eccentricities. <coughs> and the three main aspects of it that stand out, although it all, all of the law created eccentricities because the Jews just couldn't intermingle very easily with Gentiles. But Sabbath keeping, food laws, and circumcision were the three big ones. And we know from the New Testament that there was battles about that, in, as we see in Galatians and Hebrews and elsewhere. And that's going to be pertinent to Ephesians. And Ephesus turns out to be an important place in the book of Acts because the Gentiles were polytheists, they were pagan, and not only were they you know, going to be unkosher in regard to food laws, but their morals were not acceptable in it by anybody's standards. If you're going to submit to, to Moses and Christ in the sense of Sinai and transfiguration. So this is a big issue. The Jews have to be willing to accept Gentiles. That means giving up the demand for circumcision, food laws, and Jewish Sabbath keeping rather gathering in a Christian assembly. And then the Gentiles are going to have to give up their pagan ways in regard to polytheism and immorality and superstitions that they had in paganism so that there could be this one new man comprised of Jews and Gentiles that would be pleasing to God and serving God and being able to get along with each other. So what Tannehill said here and what we're studying in Acts 13, one of the longest messages recorded of Paul speaking in the synagogue in order to give us an idea of what the issues were and what the main content would be when he did this. And this is already hitting the fan, so to speak, because it's awful. Oh, now the Gentiles want in on this. Now we don't like Paul. It was great last week. Now we don't like it. Because the Gentiles are coming. And so the problem's already starting. Acts 13, 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Wow. What's that going to do? What do you think is going to happen with that kind of statement? It's drawing a line in the sand, as, as we say in English. Uh, it's, it's really an either-or situation. Now, when it says they spoke out boldly, Paul and Barnabas, it uses a word uh, that's the deponent verb of uh, parousia, which it has to do with boldness, <clears throat> parousizomai, and it means to speak openly, boldly, and without constraint. Now it's noteworthy that Paul and Barnabas undoubtedly knew 
what kind of reaction they would get from speaking in this manner. Luke is portraying this as a good thing and a commendable thing that they would speak out boldly. The, the same word in the Greek is used in Acts many different times. And in context, it would show that this is a good thing. Acts 9.27 and 28, Acts 14.3, Acts 18.26, Acts 19.8, and Acts 26.26. Let me just read a few of those. Acts 9.27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas showed the other the, the apostles that Paul was one of us, one of them, because he had spoken out boldly. Acts 14.3, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So God testified that these were real apostles through the signs and wonders, and they were speak, trusting God, speaking out boldly. Acts 18.26, and he began to speak out boldly in his synagogue. And that was in that case, it was Apollos, and he didn't understand the whole message very well. And said, but Priscilla Aquila heard him. They took him aside, explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. In Acts 19.8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. My point is, and there's others, here's my point. It's the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ that those who proclaim it would do so with confidence and boldness. And that's all the more the case, knowing that it's going to usually bring a hostile reaction. And in my opinion, one of the most horrible, pernicious, and wicked developments in evangelical Christianity was the movement that says we have to cease doing this, get rid of accuracy and reasoning and boldness and the very things that were done in Acts because we offend too many people. And rather than doing this, which is commended by God and commanded by God, we are to do a marketing survey and find out what the religious commuter, consumers would want if indeed they would go to church. And then we're going to entertain them and give them human wisdom and give them bits and nuggets of knowledge and not speak out boldly and not proclaim Christ, but sneak it in the back door or have it in the back of the hymnal in case anybody wants to read that. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, I have been saying now for 15, 20 years is pure wickedness 
and it's rebellion against Christ. I don't care how nice somebody is. I don't care how fun they are, how funny they are, how endearing they are, how sweet they are, how winsome they are. If they don't speak out boldly about the gospel, they are rebelling against Christ. And I don't care who doesn't like it. I didn't, I wasn't called to be a preacher so that I could make everybody like me. Now, one of the worst, one of the popularizers of the get rid of speaking out boldly was Robert Schuler, a local boy who grew up, how far, Mom? 20 miles from our farm, Newkirk, Iowa. If you go to Newkirk, Iowa, it's just an intersection now. There used to be a little town there. Dad and I would drive through it. Robert Schuler, Newkirk, Iowa, right down the road from us before I was born. And he built the Crystal Cathedral on the idea that he got from Robert of Norman Vincent Peale and others to make Christianity appealing. You have to use human wisdom rather than speaking out boldly. Because we don't want to offend anybody. Brian Beers would like the mic. You're not at that same table where you can reach the other microphone. Uh, he wants you to get more, more uh, exercise here. They didn't want to sit with the big guys there. Okay, so uh, the Jews missed because of uh, uh, they missed Jesus because they didn't know the Old Testament or they didn't believe in what the Old Testament said. Which is what we're going to see. Paul's going to prove that it was God's plan to save Gentiles. Actually, let's... There it is. The next verse. Look Look it up here. See verse 47? The Lord, for the Lord has commanded us. Why are you bold? Because the Lord commanded us. What does it say? I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. So the point, now let's go back. Oh. Now let's go back and look at what Tannehill said. Okay. There was a positive reception until this, in the synagogue, until the Gentiles get excited about it. And now there's a negative reaction. And Paul's response is to cite scripture saying that God always intended to bring light to Gentiles. And the point, by the way, the eccentricity of the Jews that was caused by the law had a very, very important purpose to preserve the integrity of the promises to the patriarchs. The seed promise. And what Paul is saying is that all that happened to you has a purpose for the Gentiles. Because now the seed has come. The light has shined, according to John and John 1. And we need the Gentiles who were repent and believe the gospel to be part of this. And as I said, in Ephesians 2.15, they're going to be part of one new man comprised of Jews and Gentiles. 
And if you want to read the drama in the book of Acts, just sit down and read Acts. Some, you can read it, you know, fairly quickly and, you know, part of an hour probably. I don't know how long it takes to read Acts. Just sit and read it. But what, what is the drama? Well, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? As Paul is going there, remember, Agabus saying what's going to happen to him if he goes there? Is there going to be two churches, a Jewish church based in Jerusalem and a Gentile church based in Asia Minor? How's this going to work out? And Paul was trying to forestall the division, but when he got there, there was a riot caused by zealous Jews that didn't want the Gentiles to have any part in it. Lonnie. Yeah, I just, I was reading about this F.F. Bruce, he talks about these early days of uh, the Christians and both the Orthodox Jew, I guess, or whatever you would call them, the Pharisee, uh, whatever. They were strong believers. They read the same Bible, like the Septuagint, but they, as, as the Christian Jews... But they looked at it as a law. They looked at it as a law. And uh, the, the Christians, these new Christians, looked at it as prophecy and um, as a new covenant. Yeah, Eric has talked about that lately. Uh, tell us again, what was it, three hours? Yeah, exactly. Three yeah, the, hours. The repudiation the replacement and the reappropriation and you're exactly right that's prophecy if we take the old testament and we make it a binding legal code as which you're saying the jews did then we've got ourselves a problem but the christians were reading it as scripture informing them on messianic salvation and that's why even paul said to timothy in second timothy 3:15 that he had known the sacred writings from his youth which were able to make him wise unto salvation Amen. through faith in christ jesus that old the, the sacred writings in Second Timothy 3.15 had to be the Old Testament because we didn't have a finalized um, New Testament canon by the first century when Timothy would have been a young man. So, yeah, very, very well said, Lon. Yeah, and we're going to see uh, Paul actually do that as we get to the next verse. Now, notice it says you repudiate it. Repudiate is uh, a word that means to push away. Get out of here. We don't want it. You repudiate it. So it was necessary. Why was it necessary? Because of the purposes of God, right? What was necessary? Who told them to start at Jerusalem? Jesus, right? Okay. Um, Someone want to look up. Uh, let me find the right verse here. If I just hit the right key, I'll be okay. Acts, where is it? Acts 24, uh, is it 47? Look up the Great Commission in the end of Acts. And then um, Eric uh, with the mic, would you want to look up Acts 1 8? Acts 1 8. Acts 1 8. Okay. We want to see what created the necessity that it would be spoken first to them. 
Okay, I have Acts 1-8. Should I read that, or did you want the other one first? No, go ahead. Okay, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Yeah, so it starts Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Yeah. It's Luke 24-47, Eric, I looked it up. Oh, I'm sorry, which one? 24-47. Yeah. Now, that's really the outline of Acts. Where did it start on the day of Pentecost? Who preached? Peter. Where? Jerusalem. And then it goes out to Samaria. Why Samaria? Well, the Samaritans, they had some problems, but they had some things in common with the Jews. And then it goes from there out to Gentiles. And it wasn't Paul who first brought it to Gentiles. It was Peter. Remember the vision? And the events in Acts 10 and 11. Go ahead, uh, Luke 24, 47. Luke 24, 47, it says, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Yeah, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so... The real battle is, uh, I'm fascinated, frankly, by Acts 21. It's really going to be interesting when we get to Acts 21. Because James is trying to head off a a big revolt. And Paul's willing to go to really almost extreme measures, taking a vow. Remember, he was going to try to fit in. And uh, he was later accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which wasn't true. Yes, here. Yeah, um, correct me if I'm wrong. The Jewish people, in, even back in the Old Testament, you know, Genesis 11, where the, all of the nations were under God's wrath, and then God chose Abraham to be, and, and the Jewish people, the Jewish nation was to be a light to the nations. Isn't that an Old Testament concept? They were well, to be a light yeah, it's, it's, and separate. It's separate. never been off the table that God was going to bring salvation around the world. And the prophets under the Old Covenant said, now, let me talk a little bit about repudiate, and then I want to go to the next slide, and we'll see that, okay? Uh, I wanted to... Now, necessary uh, means there's a moral and spiritual need according to one of my sources on the Greek word. It's not day. It's a different word. Anakaios. Kaios, and it's, it's moral and spiritual need. Um, it makes them a necessity. Dr. Peterson here has a citation I, I have for you. It says the Christian gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Jews everywhere have a prior right to hear what God has done for them. However, the Greek uh, conjunction, apide, sense, indicates a clear causal relationship between the rejection of the gospel by these Jews and the deliberate turning of Paul and Barnabas to ministry among Gentiles in that city. To the Jew first, Paul mentions that in Romans 1.16. They don't want to, 
Well, it's not true. There was always some Jews that were saved. And it's not like all the Gentiles are going to receive it because, as you see through Acts, there's plenty of hostility. So even if you... Let's think again about the one new man, Ephesians 2.15. You have Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ, under Christ, under the law of Christ, serving him by faith and obedience by his grace... They're going to be rejected by the world too, by both camps, all right? The church is the one new man, and it's the new people under the new covenant. And as we have emphasized for decades, this doesn't mean there aren't still promises to the patriarchs as, as we've seen in Romans chapter 11. But I've got to get to the next slide here because it's pertinent to what we're talking about. Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord had, has commanded us. Now here it's citing a prophecy from Isaiah and calling it God commanding us. So it's being fulfilled there on the scene of history. Acts 13, 47. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So I, Isaiah 46 is messianic prophecy. Now I looked up in the, at least the version of uh, the Greek Old Testament I have with my Logos Bible. I've got several versions of it actually. And I looked up that phrase to the end of the earth. And it's absolutely identical in Isaiah 49.6, Acts 1.8, and Acts 13.47. So what's cited from Isaiah is literally what's going on here in Acts. So this is very, very clear that this is Bible prophecy and that God is fulfilling it. Now, this was important for those Jews in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch because they had heard and believed, many of them, and they need to accept it. This is God's doing. Don't be jealous, as we saw earlier. Okay? Don't be jealous. And start a riot. Just accept that God's going to add Gentiles to the promises he gave to the patriarchs and to Moses and through given to us through the prophets like Isaiah. I, in seminary, wrote a paper about this. He called this the Great Commission in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49.6. Isn't that interesting? Light, by the way. We were talking about that earlier. Oh, Brian, you were talking to me about light, light and darkness. Really, uh, I know John's off the beaten path for Luke Acts, but I love how John brings the light motif into John 1 right away. The light coming into the world is Christ. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Did he not? And whoever believes in him will no longer dwell in darkness, but have the light of light, life, I mean. So 
Luke 2.32. Um, let's all turn together. I have a longer quote here. I'm testing the power of my bifocals. I have such small print. <laughs> Luke 2.32. But let's, let's start with Luke 2.25. And I am going to, I hope, by God's grace, help you see the brilliance of the narrative unity of Luke Acts, how Luke tells his story. It's really amazing. Luke is a fantastic author, and he introduces things in a, seem, in a way that, when you, if you just assume you never read Luke or Acts, and you have the two-volume work, and you start reading Luke, and you get toward the beginning of Luke, there are themes introduced that the significance of which you may not get until later in Acts, all of a sudden, whoa, that's what Simeon was talking about. Let's see it. Okay? Luke 2.25. Let's all turn together to it. I'll read it. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And notice what Luke says. I want to help you learn how to read Luke Acts. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let me stop right there. Luke lets us know who we should listen to and whose words are important in confirming God's ways. Luke doesn't leave us wondering whether Simeon was to use a simplified way of saying it, was a good guy or a bad guy. Do you, do you see what I mean? One of the things Luke does in his narrative is lets us know who to listen to because he'll mention that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the ones when, who had the Holy Spirit speak about Messiah and speak for God. The main thing the Holy Spirit causes in Luke X and the Old New Testament is to speak forth truth about Messianic salvation. So now we know Simeon, what is he called? Righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. So he, he believed there was going to be a Messiah who would come. And he was had the Holy Spirit on him. So he's going to speak something significant. Verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Well, that's very unique. He happened to be on the scene of history when Messiah shows up. Interesting. And so now we see the Holy Spirit attesting the presence of Messiah. By the way, that's how you discern a work of the Spirit the confession of Christ. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit. Notice again, three times now the Holy Spirit is mentioned. He came in the spirit into the temple. By the way, the temple becomes a focal point of controversy in Acts 21. And the temple is a focal point of controversy in Luke. Jesus' lament his journey that starts all the way in Acts 9.51 toward Jerusalem to be rejected. There's pathos. 
There's drama. There's tension. Luke masterfully lays this out. Here is the consolation of Israel. A Holy Spirit-filled devout man at the temple looking for the Messiah. He's in Jerusalem. Later in Luke, Jesus is going there and he laments over Jerusalem. And the temple will be destroyed. Uh, Yes, go ahead, um, Adam. Give me a cough drop. Uh, This... This theme and idea of light is really amazing and how it connects uh, to uh, God's anointed king, his Davidic king, uh, but then to the nation Israel and to God himself. And so in Isaiah 60, it's bracketed with this theme of light. And so it begins, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then it talks about how all the nations come to them. And when you go to the end of the chapter... It says, uh, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness uh, shall the moon give you light, or nor, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be right." All be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Uh, The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. I think that, does Zechariah in Luke uh, chapter 1, does he even draw on some of those ideas of darkness and light? Yeah, darkness and light is in Luke 1. And what's really great, Adam, thank you for that, it's a good reading. I love how Themes are raised at the very beginning of Luke that don't get wrapped up really t- till the end of Acts. But one of the uh, inclusio or bookend things going on in Luke Acts is in Acts twenty six eighteen, where Paul is in front of a pagan king saying that this conversion, this promise, is going from darkness to light, mm-hmm. from the dominion of Satan to God. So there is amazing uh, narrative unity and there's continuity with the Old Testament prophecy. Yeah, and and, uh, Luke Acts even leaves certain things open that the mission isn't done until you come to the end of Revelation. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Praise God. So here we are. The Spirit comes on to Simeon. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's not going to die before he sees the Lord's Christ. He came in the spirit into the temple, which is, by the way, a place of conflict and really ultimately rejection. Uh, And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. By the way, blessing God is how Ephesians starts. The eulogetos is a barakah blessing God for his mighty deeds and his glorious attributes. And he blessed God and said, now, now, Lord, 
you are releasing your bondservant, that would be Simeon, to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Luke 2.32. Now look at where we are here in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. A light for the Gentiles. The point of Luke Acts is that the light going to Gentiles isn't meaning that something bad is going on for Jews who also believe in the light. This is what God intended that both Jews and Gentiles would come to the light and would not dwell in darkness. It's portrayed that way by Simeon as a good thing. And the proper response is that Gentiles don't become anti-Semitic. They remember to the Jew first. And the Gentiles to openly embrace, as they, the Jews who come to Christ, openly embrace the Gentiles. And that as now, after this next week, I'm going to go into the part of Ephesians that lays out moral guidance. There's a necessary way to make it possible for this one new man to coexist in peace in the Lord. And it's that we have to be under the law of Christ. Christ is the lawgiver of the new covenant. If we're just going to have Moses only, we're going to have a problem. You won't have the one new man. All right, so, in light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, it's both. Light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel because it was through them the Messiah came and brought light to Gentiles. And it's only right because Isaiah prophesied it and he spoke for God under the Mosaic Covenant. And as I said, to the end of the earth, identical in Isaiah 49, 6, Acts 1, 8, and here in Acts 13, 47. I looked that up to see that it really was identical. Now, Paul will preach to Gentiles, but this was first begun by Peter in Acts 10 and 11, which we have already covered. Verse 48. Now, notice what it says. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then now we're going to introduce Eric's uh, sticky wicket for next week. All right. This is a little segue. I'm laying it out here for you, Eric. Adam's going to be teaching next week. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Forgot about that. You're going to be up at the cabin. Well, when he comes, when Eric gets to teach Sunday school, we're going to find out if God actually ever appointed anybody to eternal life. Some people deny that that ever happens. But here it is. So we've got to deal with it. We should deal with it. So the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then Luke says, as many has been has had been appointed to eternal life believed now 
something struck me. I, I did a bunch of work on this, and I've got all the Greek and cross-references and so on to share with you. But something struck me on a more fundamental basis. Now, people who hate the idea that God ever elected anybody for salvation are very, very annoyed by this verse. And they try to portray it in such a way that they appointed themselves or something like that. But here's what I thought about. Luke didn't have to say it this way. Luke purposely, and this is thematic in Luke Acts, was that there were people hardened in the bigger scheme of God's purpose. And how often I would have gathered you, but it was hidden from your eyes, and so on. And others, unexpectedly, are saved. And the, the word day, purpose, is used throughout Luke Acts, that God's purpose is going forward. Now, this is an apologetic. God's not failing. The Bible doesn't portray Messianic salvation as a massive failure with a few lucky successes. I remember the debate with Greg Boyd, and this came up. He's the open theist because he sees that the only way, if we want everything to be fair, for it to be fair, in his mind, is if God doesn't know the future. Because if God knows the future, the future is just as certain as if God ordained the future. So then the question comes up, well, maybe nobody would have been saved if God doesn't know. And he makes this plan, and it depended on some people making a choice for the salvation to come to anybody. How do you know anybody who's going to be saved? And in one of somewhere, uh, the response was, well, God got lucky. Uh, I don't think that came out in a debate. It came in a blog debate that my friend had with him. Well, God got lucky. Some people decided to come to their senses. Now, that is that, but here's what I want us, dear ones, to learn together. That's not what Luke is telling us. And there's a reason Luke puts this terminology here. This is not an accident. It's not poorly written. It's not from any creed or council as its original source. This was way before creeds and councils. This was Luke. Luke's apologetic purpose, one of them is that Jerusalem's rejection of Messiah was part of God's eternal purpose so that the light would go to the Gentiles. And it needed to be that way. And it says, using that same word, by the way, it needs be that offenses come, but woe to him by whom it comes. Don't be the one who causes the offense. Here's what I want to say. Eric will cover this, I promise you. This liberated me when I learned it. There is compatibility between God's eternal purposes happening on the scene of history and human responsibility for their own actions. It is not either or. 
Okay? An either or in logic is, is when there's non-tertium quid. No third option. Either God's in charge of his universe, including who's saved and who isn't, or man's free will and responsibility determine what happens. That's what a lot of people like to put out there. There's no third option, they say. But the Bible believes in both things. I discovered that when I started teaching verse by verse in the Bible in the early 80s. I have a crisis. Either I abandon the commitment I made to the church to teach verse by verse through the Bible, or I deal with this. I had no other option. So after three or four years of making sure I went to safe books, none of them were really safe, I had to face this face-to-face with the truth and suffer rejection. And, and I was rejected. The church lost people. People had it with us because we taught the sovereignty of God. But I didn't adopt a creed. I didn't become a Calvinist. I just taught through Romans. And I used to ask people. One person called and was just railing at me on the phone. I heard you taught this. What are you doing teaching this? There was something in Romans 9. I said, were you there when I announced that we were going to teach verse by verse of the Bible? Yes. Did you think it was a good idea? Because we were sick of all the hotshot preachers coming through town with the latest, greatest plan to make everybody healthy, wealthy, and solve all your problems. And then it would blow over, and the next guy would come through, and it would blow over. And they all ended up with broken, hurt people because it was wrong, it was wrong, it was wrong, it was wrong. And we got tired of it, and we decided, at least we, well, if we teach the Bible, it's never wrong. And we won't have to apologize. Do you remember when we did that? Yes, I do. Okay, here's the verse I taught on, and I quoted it. What if you were the one teaching this? What would you say that verse meant when you, when you taught it to the class? I don't know, but I don't like it. <laughs> so, okay. Um, that's common, but here's what we all have to ask ourselves. It isn't whether we like it. The Jews didn't like it that God saved Gentiles. Our romantic inclinations and personal preferences aren't adequate for finding what's ultimately true. So I had to come to this conclusion. Here's what I said on that. that was, there are certain things that stand out in my mind as watershed events. One of them was when me and the CIA talked with the senior pastor and we agreed that we needed to teach through the Bible because we couldn't have people hurt by false teachers. That was a watershed event. My life's never been the same. That phone call stands out in my mind as a similar thing. Because I either had to back down and say we won't do this anymore or take the heat when we come to verses that people don't like. And I said, here's what I'm going to ask you to do to the, the person I was talking to. Stay with it. And I went to Romans 10. I think I was in Romans 9 when the objection came up. And I said, well, when we get to Romans 10, I promise you I will teach this with just as much enthusiasm. 
Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, so I, I promise I'll teach that. It's not incompatible. If it was incompatible, don't you think Paul would have noticed that it was incompatible? That's why we teach compatibilism. If somebody's saved, they were appointed by God to eternal life. We don't know who's saved. They're a mess. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And not only do we say that, we command it. We speak out boldly. Repent and believe the gospel. And somebody does, God granted repentance. Give him all the glory. There's your five solas. And I'm just telling you personally the survival mechanism that got me to this point where I'm still teaching uh, 40 years later. I just have to, have to, I may fail in many ways, and I already have, but I can't fail to tell you the truth from the Bible. I can't fail on that one because then that's, that's awful because then it's not just me failing. It's harming everybody in the whole church because God inspired the word of God for all of our benefits and it will always help us. It will always sanctify us. It will always make us more prepared and lead us toward glory and it will never harm us. And I have a, a sacred duty to God to teach everything with the same clarity and help us understand it. Have been appointed in that vein. Have been appointed. The word appointed from the root tasso. Okay, it's from tasso. And it's used eight times in the New Testament, five of which are in Luke Acts. And the word means to set in order. So as many as have been, it's in a perfect passive participle. Having been set in order. So this is where the idea of the eternal decrees of God come in Christian theology. So there was... Uh, having been appointed in the decrees of God, but that's his secret will. We don't know it as revealed will until they actually believe. So Luke says they're having been appointed to eternal life because they did believe that then he knew that. Does that make sense? That's how it works. Before it happens, God knows it, but we don't. We don't know. We don't know who's going to believe. It could be the most angry, nasty, rebellious sinner. Some of you have children, and you're concerned about them. In fact, we probably all do. With a few exceptions, there may be some families where all the children are serving the Lord. But we're all concerned about our children. But we don't give up. And we don't change our theology and start behaving in ways that are non-biblical to make ourselves feel better. You can say, 
baptism saves, and so we're going to baptize our babies, and they're all saved, and I'm just going to feel good about it. And that's the end of the story. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is it worth feeling better if it means not believing what the Bible actually says? I don't think it's worth it to feel better. God will somehow work this all out. The only time we know is when it happens. Is that right, Eric? Is there some other way to know? It happened. Having been appointed. The gospel is the means God uses to bring forth faith in those who are so appointed. Dr. Schnabel, one of my sources, says this. Not all Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch come to faith in Jesus and thus receive salvation. Rather, the Gentiles who believe have a stew song in Jesus are all those who were destined, his translation, for eternal life. The word translated all, hosoi, denotes as many as. With the following clause indicating the quantitative scope of those who come to faith, people whom God destined, teta gemeno, for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins, for justification, before his tribunal for salvation. The verb tasso used with the preposition ice into means to assign someone to a certain classification to be classified among those possessing. And then he cites someone else. The expression stresses God's sovereign work in moving people to come to faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah and Savior. So, Dr. Schnabel, by the way, his commentary is fantastic. Glad I bought it. Um, commentary on Acts that, um, is part of a series that I bought. So here's my statement. I already made it, but I'll, I'll, it's in my notes in this way. Luke purposely put appointed in the divine passive here because it's important to his theme that God's purposes are going forward despite rejection by both Jews and Gentiles. This is thematic, thematic. We cannot just push this aside by ignoring it or claiming it's not important because we prefer to hear about free will. God doesn't make the Bible according to our personal preferences. Didn't someone tell you who was it wanted to debate this? Maybe Jessica told me this. Elect the word elect in regard to salvation is only found nineteen times, so it's not important. Well it's nineteen more than free will. It's nineteen to zero. You know, this isn't about counting verses, it's about understanding God. Quickly, I gotta I I haven't done this for a while. I've been hearing have you been do you ever turn on the news and see politics? Yeah. Nobody, just me. <laughs> I want to, I want to, here, I'll, let me go to, there is, by the way, let me re- quick read this. The apostle, this is a, one of those slides. This is that passage from Isaiah 49.6. Here's the caption. The apostle Paul quoted from this passage in Isaiah 49. 
This photograph shows a portion of the great Isaiah scroll, a manuscript written about 200 years before Paul spoke these words in Antioch. The great Isaiah scroll is owned by the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? 200 years before, we have proof that this is exactly what Isaiah said that Paul quoted in the book of Acts. Here's something quickly. Have you heard lately when something comes up that calls for a moral decision and the response is, well, I guess we need to have a conversation. Have you heard that? Remember the doctor who's now a governor? There, there's a, a baby born. Well, now we ought to have a conversation about whether it'll live or die. I mean, I'm summarizing conceptually what was going on. And I've seen that happen again and again and again. Something comes up that if we understand the Bible, there's a good and evil going on. But they're saying, no, we've got to have a conversation. Uh, emergent, I wrote a book about emergent. Emergent is called, they call themselves the emergent conversation. Everything the Bible says about anything is worthy of a conversation. But if you make a dogmatic claim or truth claim, that's, that's what McLaren calls a conversation stopper. Where does that idea come from? Back in the garden. The serpent. Has God said, let's have a conversation about whether or not you can eat from the tree. So you keep talking until it don't seem so bad. You say things a certain way, oh, that doesn't seem so bad. You're going to be like God. Now, I quoted an emergent writer here. I got a couple minutes. <clears throat> a guy by the name of Samir Shlomo, Shlomanovic writes this. He's talking about openness to the other. You hear that all the time. This book on Enneagram has that. Let me, I'm quoting this guy in, a, in my book. We have created a false tension between keeping our Christian identity intact and approaching the world in humility. Humility is to be our identity. When we open ourselves to be taught by the other, quotes there, we don't become less the followers of Christ, but more so. So their idea is the other, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt have no other gods before thee, Thou shalt not make an idol. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whatever the other is that we've been forbidden, we've got to be open to it in humility. So now, disobeying God's moral law is openness to the other. Maybe we need to have a conversation. Now, I'm going to tell you what I said about that quote in this book. According to Paul, we are to guard the flock against the other. That is, religious beliefs are not in accord, with the, in accord with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in the emergent view, 
the other teaches us. Humility, I'm saying, is not openness to false religions and false teachings. It's the realization that we are sinners who need a Savior. If you think you know what God said and that Christ is who he claimed to be, that there is a heaven and a hell, that there is forgiveness of sins, that God has spoken, they're saying you're full of pride and you're not open to the other. But we need to have a conversation. And I'm saying, no, God has spoken in full and final revelation. And the other that I'm supposed to be open to is going to take me to hell, and I don't want to go there. Do you understand that? When you see the conversation thing come up, you know what's going on. Yes? Yeah, I know we have very little time, but, you know, when we say uh, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, we're to be humble before God's word and before God. That's what we're supposed to be humble before. And, yeah. and, and if, if our preconceived notions are not in line with God's word, we need to take a look at our preconceived notions. And this right. is where so many of these questions, we've got to humble ourselves and, before God and God's word. That, yeah, in, in the book here, I went on to say that Moses was called humble in the Old Testament. Humble Moses told the Israelites not to listen to anyone who came in the name of a God they had not known, even if they produced signs. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. Moses was humble, but he's the one through whom God gave the law. Being humble doesn't mean there's no law, there's no truth, and there's no salvation. And he was bold in front of Pharaoh. Absolutely. So, dear ones, don't be deceived. If God has spoken... What he says is absolute truth, not a conversation that's going to lead somewhere else. Don't be deceived by the emergent conversation. Let's close the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and grace and mercy in Christ. Pray for Eric that you would give him the grace to be bold as he preaches the truth to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you upstairs.